right, let's find a seat. Our time is up. And uh, love that social dimension of your spirituality. Beautiful to see. Got your coffee. We're good. So uh, we're going to continue. As I said earlier, this is the penultimate message on the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, of course, Alec was a little sick last week. I didn't realize that. So he... You didn't? This is the penultimate. Didn't realize that. Yeah. I like that. I like saying that. Penultimate. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but uh, last week, uh, Alec was sick, and uh, Wade was supposed to speak today. And uh, Alec kept telling me that last week's text and this week's text really go well together. And, uh, and then Wade, of course, is, is walking through the, the whole process of, of grieving uh, the passing of his dear friend and getting ready for the memorial this coming Friday. So we all looked at it and thought it would be a good idea for Alec to kind of take both texts and, since they work so well together. So that's a little bit of what's happening. So it's great. I'm going to pray for, for Alec. And uh, we're going to get right into it. So, Lord, thank you for Alec and, and uh, the, the gift that he is to us, the gift that you've placed within him. And, Lord, we just ask by your spirit that it would just be stirred up, Lord, today as, you, as he speaks. Just breathe on these, uh, these burning coals that are in his heart. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you would speak that you would challenge our hearts. Lord, as we come to the close, uh, closer to the end of this series, that uh, you would just do what you want to do. Just do your underlining and exc exclamation marks and whatever you want to italicize. God, we just ask that you would flow through him. And we say, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. Come, Holy Spirit. And we thank you. We reverence this time as being on holy ground as you speak, the living God. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, thank you. Sorry for bailing on you guys last week, but trust me, it was in everyone's best interest that, uh, that we didn't come. Plus, when you're sick and you're on drugs, I'm not sure it's the best, best thing to be doing to get in up in front of a bunch of people and try and talk about the Bible. It's just not advisable. I had, it, I had already written quite a bit of what I'm going to present today, but... Uh, I had to edit probably half of it because I thought, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. That won't fly. So now I can be held accountable because I'm not sick or on drugs for what I'm about to say. And um, like Gordy said, we're kind of playing catch up because I'm going to go ahead and cover last week's text along with the one that Wade was assigned for today too. So um, before we get down to it, let me just reorient you to what we've been doing with our sermon series since even before Christmas. It's been a long time coming. What we've been doing is we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been emphasizing the way the Sermon on the Mount really constitutes Jesus' syllabus for what it means to be his disciples, what it means to be part of this alternative society he's forming around himself. And if you can remember, I hope, where we landed two weeks ago after Gordy finished, that'd be really helpful today. Because a lot of what we're going to look at, I think, connects with what he spoke about concerning the narrow and the wide gates. Um, just to jog your memory, Gordy ended with the idea that the good news, the gospel, is that yes, the gate is narrow and the way is difficult, the few will find it, but it's open because of the person of Christ. The gate is open. 
because he's the gate. He's the way. And one of the most important things that this means is we must refuse any temptation to turn this path of discipleship, of following Jesus, into something abstract, something rigid, something easy to put down on paper and turn into a program. It's not. It's not a program that you can buy off of some infomercial at 2 in the morning when you're sick and on drugs and eating popsicles and barely eating popsicles because your stomach is so churned up. You know, you can't, uh, you can't get it from TV. And Gordy really hit the nail on the head when he ended his sermon two weeks ago with the quote from Paul in his letter to the Romans. He said, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our deliverance is not found in some legalistic standard that's imposed on us. Our deliverance comes through the person of Jesus. And that's good news. It's it's that very same emphasis on the person of Jesus that we're going to look at today, where Jesus is warning us about true and false prophets and about true and false disciples. But we're going to look at each text I got the reference there, Matthew 7, 15 to 23. That actually spans both of these things, um, but we're going to look at them separately. So this is Matthew 7, 15 to 20 first. Somebody want to read that for me? You can do 20 as well. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for that. So uh, if you're... (laughs) Well, if you have have a multitasking brain, then you were able to get two translations at once there. Thank you, Paul. No problem. And hopefully you can already see the thread of continuity that I'm trying to establish here. We left off last time. Um, not last week, but two weeks ago, we left off with the exhortation that the gate is narrow, the way is difficult, but it's open. So get moving. And then right away, Jesus issues a pretty stern warning. So for those of you who happen to be taking the narrow way, for all our passengers who've chosen the difficult road, watch out. Watch out for what? For false prophets. Evidently, there are false prophets out there, or Jesus wouldn't need to warn us about them. Why do we need to watch out for them? Because they don't look like false prophets. Contrary to that mob in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you can't tell a witch is a witch because she's wearing a big, fake, crooked nose and a pointy hat. How do you know she is a witch? Because she looks like one. Burn her! No, it doesn't quite work like that in real life. It might work in witch hunts, but not here. Not with false prophets, because they come in sheep's clothing, which means... They look like us. They might look like me. How do you know who they are? You'll know them by their fruit. Do grapes come from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, I grew up in St. James, Missouri, right here. 3,500 people, small town USA, wonderful place to grow up, if you can avoid the meth labs. And... (laughs) 
Can we strike that from the recording? I'm just joking. One of my favorite things to do as a kid was ride bikes with my friends through the streets of small town St. James. And we always rode on the sidewalk because it was much more dangerous than riding on the road. It's because every sidewalk in St. James is the bicycle version of the slalom. You know, there isn't a flat sidewalk in the whole town. Do you remember Excite Bike? I'm pretty sure they modeled that game after St. James Sidewalks. This is me and my friends. I'm the one in the lead. And the reason behind this crazy terrain of the streets in St. James were that they were lined with gumball trees, with roots that have pushed the concrete up from underneath, leaving all these sweet jumps every 20 yards or so. But the gumball trees made our bicycle competitions pretty thrilling for another reason, too. Let me show you a few pictures to explain this. This is a common American sweet gum tree. Now look at this. This also is a sweet gum, but it's very different. In fact, it's a different species of sweet gum altogether. They don't look very different, do they? It's because if you were judging by sight alone, they are in fact identical. The only difference between them is that every spring, the one on the left decides to hail down with a furious wrath about a thousand of these spiky green balls of rage and disaster that would literally make you cry if you were looking up to examine an eclipse or something. (laughs) Or they'd make your tires forget all about gripping the sidewalk when you landed yet another sweet jump. So, what normally happens when a new and young city is getting its act together, is the city planner will start looking to order about a couple hundred trees for the city to line every street. And normally, if he's interested in American sweet gums, he'll just go ahead and read that sheet that says there's a seedless option available. And, well, he'll probably order that one, the one that doesn't drop any of these nightmare pods on kids in springtime. But the city planner in St. James must have been sick or on drugs that day because he didn't seem to know about the difference. But trust me, my friends, we knew. Every year, we knew them by their fruit. Bad fruit, bad tree. And if Jesus had been talking about gumball trees in this passage in Matthew, all of St. James would have been nodding in unison. Oh yeah, you know them by their fruit. They might look the same, but you know them. Now, Jesus didn't talk about gumball trees. He talked about fig trees and grapevines. And as it turns out, this would have made a lot more sense to his original audience. Because if he had said, do spiky green balls come from a seedless rotunda loba sweet gum tree? They might have scratched their heads. Instead, he talked about fig trees and vines because there's actually lots of fig trees and vines in the Bible and not to mention in the ancient Near East. This is a pretty quick list from the Old Testament where both fig trees and vines appear in the same reference. Um, Judges 9, we get the story of Jotham, who challenges the people of Israel about whether or not they were honorable as they chose their king, and he puts it to them in a parable that has all the elements of our text from Jesus today. You know, it's chock full of fig trees, grapevines, even a thorn bush with the conclusion that if they don't choose rightly and do um, God's decree obediently, fire will consume them. In 1 Kings, 
The phrase is used as a description of how great it was for the people to live during the reign of Solomon. It says, everybody lived in safety under their own fig tree and vine. In Deuteronomy 8, we get Moses telling the people not to forget the Lord when they go into the promised land. And the words we usually remember from this reference are the ones about the land flowing with milk and honey. But too, it's flowing with fig trees and vines paired together again. In Psalm 105.33, the psalmist is recounting the plagues during the Exodus that God sent upon the Egyptians. And he says, Yahweh struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. Isaiah 36.16 is pretty interesting because in that context, the, 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 the vine and the fig tree language is actually part of the use of a false prophet. The people of Israel are scared to death by this threat of an opposing king, the king of Assyria. And the king of Israel at the time, Hezekiah, he's trying to keep everybody calm, saying that the Lord will protect Israel. But the commander of the Assyrian army is yelling at them instead, don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. So on and so forth, Uh, through Jeremiah, through Hosea, through Joel, the vine and the fig tree language is paired together and it keeps popping up time and time again. So it should be pretty clear to us that this is just not some random metaphor Jesus is using. It's intentional. And if you want to remember two weeks ago during our meditation, Joanna summarized a lot of this, actually, when she was talking about what happens to this imagery by the time we start to get to the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus. See, even though Israel typically thought of themselves as God's own vine, By the time we get to the New Testament, the metaphors are starting to shift. And they're starting to focus on Jesus being the true vine, the true Israel, the one who can be faithful in all the ways Israel can't. So this is something of a side point, but do you remember that scene where Jesus curses the fig tree? So it's in the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're also reading today. It's a pretty weird scene, actually, at first glance. It's worth taking a look at real quick. Matthew 21, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. Now, if you come to this story, without that whole Old Testament composite in mind, this is just plain strange. What's what's Jesus' problem here? I mean, okay, he's hungry. Grab a Snickers or something. Why why be a hater and start withering trees? Does Jesus ever do anything like this anywhere else in the Gospels where he uses his authority as the Son of God to start cursing trees for not having any fruit on their branches? What's this about? Well, if we're quick to pick up on the imagery from the Old Testament— makes a lot more sense, I'd say, because Jesus is rebuking the fig tree all the time as he confronts the religious leaders of Israel. In his interaction with them, the people who think they've really got the angle on God, and they lord it over the people. In his confrontation with their own spiritual blindness, he curses their fruitlessness time and time again. And over the course of the Gospels, as I've been saying, He starts to take 
All these Old Testament images of fruitfulness and abundance and God's blessing and what it means to be the true people of God, the light to the nations, he starts to take all of that, which is code-worded in fig trees and vines, and he folds it on himself. The most explicit moment comes in the Gospel of John, where he just comes out and says, I am the true vine. But we're going to save that for later. Sorry, Kenny. For now, I just want you to see how rich this imagery is and how necessary I think it is for how we understand what's going on in the passage we're looking at today. Let's catch our breath, namely my breath. We'll read the whole thing again just so we don't get lost. Somebody else want to read the the passage, please? Thanks. Keep going. Thank you. Well, okay, uh, let's just stop and admit, I think it's safe to admit this, that even if we understand the Old Testament imagery, I'm honestly not sure how helpful this is as a way of discerning true from false prophets. I mean, if you have to wait to see their fruit, isn't that kind of late? If you have to wait till the spiky green balls are falling on your head, how helpful is that really? Obviously, the tree is bad. We can see that now, but we had to plant about 100 million of them all over the city to find out. So let's just frame what I think is a pretty reasonable objection a bit more seriously. I really want to know, how does what Jesus say here help someone as they're thinking about signing up with a ministry, for instance, or as they're being led to support someone's cause, or if they're looking to join a church or something? How does what Jesus say here help us when it might just be too soon to tell what the fruit of it all is going to be? Maybe we should all become private investigators and start digging up people's pasts, looking for what their record is like before we're allowed to trust anybody. Is that what Jesus wants us to do? Well, I don't think so. So let me just say what I think is going on. I think Jesus is actually doing two things in this passage. And the first thing he's doing is fairly basic. It's fairly modest. I think on one level, he's simply providing a general principle by which we can avoid false teachers, which is what prophet can also mean. And I think it does mean in this context. Just consider the sense it makes to think of the false prophets that we're supposed to avoid as false teachers. In Jesus' context, the false prophets were the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, the the, the people, the teachers of the law, whom, as we have already seen, didn't have any fruit to show despite all their teaching about being God's chosen few and what that meant. Something the early church constantly had to watch out for were false teachers, the kind of people who weren't content with the gospel of grace. So they kept jerking the wheel back into the old covenant where we might measure our performance before God. And they did it in all kinds of ways that you can read Paul denouncing most viciously through the New Testament. Um, Similarly for us today, the prophets I think we're supposed to watch out for are probably not the kinds of people 
who stand on street corners preaching the end of the world. There's not actually a whole lot of them around, and no one listens to them anyway. If that's who Jesus is warning us about, I'd say the problem is solved way too easily. Instead, I think he's simply saying, I think he's simply saying this, if you want to follow me and be my disciple, hear this simple warning. There's going to be other people along the way with you, and some of them don't belong, but they're going to claim to be in the know, and they're going to try to get you on board with what they're selling, so watch out for them. They like to talk the talk, but just pay attention to their lives. It won't add up. The fruit's not there. So watch out for those people because they will eventually be heading for destruction. Now, I don't think we have to apologize about the fact that this principle is pretty limited in practice, isn't it? It's patient. It's reflective. It's somewhat passive. It's based on giving somebody a chance to show their fruit. It looks first at what they've done, not who they are what they've produced, what they've said, what they've left behind with their relationships and their commitments. It's almost like Jesus really is saying that, yes, we got to let the spiky balls fall on our heads first before we can recognize the tree for what it is. And that's all well and good. But we're not really satisfied with that, are we? We want more for our judgment. We don't want to wait around to see the fruit. We want to judge the tree itself. We don't want to just clue in based on seeing someone's record. We want to go further and just judge the person. I mean, if we could judge the person, couldn't we avoid so much trouble in this life? Couldn't we just skip so much of the heartache that's paralyzed us in the past when we trusted and learned later that we shouldn't have? Well, guess what? It seems that that kind of judgment is not on our job description. And at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we should have learned that. Just in case we didn't, Jesus will remind us. Which leads me to the second thing I think he's doing in the passage. But to see it, we got to keep reading. Right, Edwin? Keep reading. I find it instructive that this is the passage. That You have something to say? You want to find it and send it to me? We can we can talk about it later. Because this is I guarantee I guarantee there's this is a debatable point. A lot of what I'm saying is debatable. Yeah, so you're kind of you're kind of agreeing with what I'm saying. It's it's, um, it's difficult, and that's kind of what I'm trying to point to here: is that we do want 
to have that preemptive judgment. So we don't have to wait till it's too late. We don't have to do the damage control. But it seems that, well, let's just continue with the flow. Because I find it instructive that this is the passage that immediately follows Jesus' teaching about true and false prophets. He just said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And without skipping a beat, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you feel that? I hope you feel that. These verses literally scare the hell out of me. And if they don't challenge you to, you're probably dead. The feeling that I think most of us have when we hear these words, that feeling of, you know, slight panic, you know what that is? It's the reflection of our own unrighteous judgment wanting to judge other people, staring us in the face. It's almost like Jesus can anticipate, as he warns us about true and false prophets, he can anticipate our sinful tendency to want to judge people too quickly. So he adds this second part of the passage just to put us in our place. You want a window into the kind of judgment that God alone gets to exercise? Here's what it looks like. Let's let off some tension. (laughs) Yeah. Protect your children's eyes. I don't know how that wolf did that. (laughs) Now that is sneaky. See, I think it's very tempting for us to think that a false prophet is someone really sneaky and deceitful. Somebody who's hell-bent on going around destroying God's work. There are such people around. I'm not minimizing them. But let's not get too comfortable. I don't think we should let the importance of this warning pass us by because we'd rather take the comforting route. And it's comforting to draw a caricature of what a false prophet's supposed to look like, then sigh with relief, because, whew, none of them around. Pass the coleslaw. (laughs) But maybe even the ferocious wolves going around in sheep's clothing, maybe they aren't, in fact, all that different from the likes of me with all my best intentions standing here this morning. Jesus has a tendency for hyperbole. And I shudder to think of that because I don't usually like to think of myself as a ferocious wolf. I mean, maybe sometimes. Depends on how Crystal's feeling. But certainly not when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. And I start thinking. If I don't like thinking of myself as a ferocious wolf, how would I like it if Jesus called me the personification of Satan himself? Remember that? To his very own right-hand man, Simon Peter, to the one who rightly called him Christ, the son of the living God, to this precious disciple, the rock, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have the things in mind of God, but the things of man. Well, if I were Peter in that moment, I think I'd probably opt for the wolf rather than Satan. Do we have more or less reason to think we're not a wolf if we reflect on Peter, the one Jesus accuses to be channeling Satan the same man who he will give the keys to the kingdom to. It's humbling, isn't it? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, yeah, watch out for false prophets because they really are out there, and here's one way you can spot them. But if you really want to get some perspective, consider this. Many will come 
saying, Lord, Lord, and he will say, who are you again? And when I reflect on that, I don't feel so anxious to be hunting witches anymore. Because now he's told me that even if my fruit looks good, I still better be sure that it's born from the will of the Father in heaven. Because if not, even that good-looking fruit in his eyes is worthless. Scary. He's not pulling punches. He says, many will be surprised on that day when he says, away from me, you evildoers. It's crazy. He actually says that the good that they've done in his name is actually evil because they did it without being known by the one they proclaimed. So let's turn the corner here quickly and start glimpsing some hope because I don't believe that Jesus' main reason for saying this stuff is to scare us. That's not his intention. But he does love us enough to cut to the chase when we really need to hear something. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as he continues to challenge us about our own sense of self-righteousness, the overriding question that he wants us to take very, very seriously is simple. Do we know him? Does he know us? Because it's in the light of Jesus that all our definitions are forced to go through some pretty serious revision, whether we like it or not. One of the things I think we've learned pretty consistently from our series so far is that you know, Jesus has this way of upping the ante at every point where we would otherwise think we've arrived, spiritually speaking. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say. If your eye offends, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. Don't follow eye for an eye. Turn the cheek. Give to whoever asks and go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the way that leads to destruction. And then now here today, it's almost as though with the way he's paired these comments together, it's like he's saying, watch out for false prophets, but make sure especially you don't become one. And the way you become one is by skipping out on the most important question he's consistently raising. Have we found our identity in him? Many will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. So evidently, it doesn't matter how many things we do for him, how many programs, initiatives, agencies, ministries, task forces, agendas, outreaches, aid organizations, healings, prophecies, worship nights, so on, that we do in his name. He leaves no confusion. He tells us, unless those things have really developed naturally from out of our intimacy with God through Jesus, none of it a true grape will make. It's not the fruit from his vine. And if he has our attention and we're hearing him well and we want to respond, how do we do it? What do we do if we don't want to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you? Well, we'd better learn to stay in the vine. Let's turn now to John 15. I'm the true vine, he says, and my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. 
Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Where are we at? Did I miss you? Oh, okay, thanks. Thanks. If you do not remain in me, thanks, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you. It's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, so my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. The alternative society that Jesus is forming around himself is clearly not defined by a bunch of people's good ideas about how to make the world a better place. The alternative society is comprised of those who have been mystically grafted in to the very life of God through Jesus. He calls us first and foremost to share in that life, the life he shares with the Father. So it's good to end with some really practical notes. How do we stay in the vine? There's no secrets or shortcuts. The the list is pretty basic. In the first place, it's helpful to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is pointless for us unless we build our lives upon it, and not just it but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We will be living in the vine when we learn to love and trust God's word, especially as it becomes present to us in the reading of Scripture. Second, pray. Prayer is one of those things that everybody's written a book about, but at some point, you just have to do it. And at its most basic, prayer is pretty simple. It's about yielding our will into the heart of God in the way Jesus prayed we would in John 15, that this would be mutual interpenetration. Prayer is our soul's exercise of learning to remain in God through Christ. Third, and this has become really important to me, if we want to stay in the vine, we have to be willing to receive grace. And God is perpetually offering us grace through the gifts that Christ has given to his church. And I admit that I think this point can be a bit tough for us in the vineyard sometimes because we don't usually think of the church as actively mediating God's grace for our spiritual nourishment, not in the way I mean. And and, and the way I mean it is that we don't have a very high view of sacraments, for instance. But that does not mean that the grace of God isn't here for building us up, if only we'd receive it. Consider that for most Protestant churches, at least, the act of preaching itself is seen as sacramental. It's a means of God's grace to us as the word is opened up and we receive it in our heart. I hope we might learn to receive the sermon that way more often. We use the language a lot, and I'm really proud of us for doing so. All we're trying to do up here is to, to mediate what God has given to each of us as speakers. And I think you'd cry if you knew how much blood, sweat, and tears Gordy puts into exercising his call as a minister of the word. I mean, he's cool and all, but he takes it really seriously. So do I. Beyond the sermon, what about the grace that is extended through baptism and communion? These things aren't just merely symbols that we can take or leave. They're not our own inventions. They're God's means of letting the life of the vine flow into our lives. Do we receive them that way? What about confession and repentance? 
You know, we have an advocate in heaven who shed his blood to cover our transgressions. We need to claim that blood and let it wash us. We need to receive God's forgiveness. It's waiting for us. And that washing takes place as we're willing to confess our sins and make ourselves accountable and let people know about the secret places in our hearts. As we do so, God's forgiveness really does do a mighty work in us as it recuperates us from the damage of sin. And we actually start to grow, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Finally, and this is kind of a catch-all, but seek that which is above. The gospel is good news because, yes, it reconciles us with each other, but let us never forget that it reconciles us to the divine life of God himself. The gospel brings us restoration horizontally and vertically. And I worry sometimes about us forgetting that vertical dimension, the dimension of wonder and mystery that accompanies our pursuit of God in himself. We have an upward call, as Paul puts it, an upward call of God in Christ. We're not following a dead man, but the living Christ, which is what we will celebrate on Easter Sunday when we, we declare with joy our Lord's resurrection. Our Lord, whose first message after his resurrection was, come follow me, I am going before you. The Lord who ascended to the right hand of the Father, he says, follow me, I'm going before you. If we're called to walk in his footsteps, this path of discipleship means ascending with him. Not just in the way of his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago, but thanks be to God for that ministry. He's uniting heaven and earth here and now. And we are people who pray, let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm almost done here. I think above all else, the passages today serve to remind those of us who have begun walking in his footsteps that our blessed assurance rests in our living relationship with him, the end. These passages warn and they remind us that the kind of faith which truly secures a solid hope for salvation has nothing to do with our list of accomplishments or our having believed the right kinds of things sometime in the past. No, if we have any reason to rest assured about where we stand with God, let it be first and foremost because we've actually sought to know him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and because we've made ourselves completely available to him, that he might know us. I want to end by listening to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, and I want you to read yourself into the scripture. This is great. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You know, when God called you, it wasn't because you were smart, powerful, or privileged. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that don't even have existence to nullify the things.